Take your golf expertise to the next level with Lynx Premier, unlocking the most exciting and insightful coverage of the game's courses, travel, communities, architecture, and more. With Lynx Premier, our latest subscription tiers offer something for everyone. Whether you enjoy reading the print edition of Lynx, clicking through our digital magazine, scrolling around lynxmagazine.com, or all of the above. Plus, subscribers receive priority notifications for exclusive Lynx events, a welcome discount code to the Lynx online shop, and much more. Get your all-access pass today by visiting lynxmagazine.com and clicking the subscribe link. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Al Lunsford, digital editor at Lynx, joined by my co-host, Joe Passoff. And today we're uh, pleased to be joined by one of the game's great outside-the-box thinkers. Uh, he was the 75th president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. In 2019, he was voted by Golf Inc. as one of the mo- game's most innovative figures. And his name is Forrest Richardson. Forrest, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we, um, we're looking forward to... We, we talked to several golf course architects and on this platform and uh, in links and, you know, a lot of, a lot of it has to do with, you know, 18 holes. You, uh, Joe, I forget what, what it is. You normally say like four par fives, four par threes, uh, kind of standard golf course stuff, but your body of work includes that, but, and then some, and uh, much more than that. And, uh, a lot of the projects you have going on, you've got a 20 hole proposal in the works. You've got a, a course with, twin nine-hole roundings playing next to each other. I mean, we're really excited to dig into your very innovative and interesting kind of different golf course designs. So I understand you grew up designing holes in your backyard as a kid, and uh, there's a great quote on your website that says, and this is from you, a, a golf course is a story to be unfolded. For the greatest enjoyment, there should be anticipation, intrigue, the occasional chase scene, and even a pinch of humor. At the start of this all, when did you learn that there was more than meets the eye initially in golf course architecture and decide that you might like to do this for a living? I I grew up playing miniature golf courses, and I uh, the, the story my brother would tell is that it was really hard to keep me away from them. I would I would be in the cars of five, six-year-old in Southern California, and we would pass a miniature golf course. And I wouldn't throw a tantrum, but I would somehow negotiate a U-turn and, and at least being able to see it. And that would sometimes lead to my parents or my uncle uh, saying, oh, well, let's just go play, you know. So I, I that's where I really caught the bug of golf. And then... A few years later, um, ended up venturing out to a, a real golf course, you know, a, with with grass on it. And I, I, I would have to say that it, it was right in that time period that it, it was pointed out to me because I, I was very interested in architecture. I think as a young kid, I wanted to design buildings. And I, I figured that, oh, architecture, this is kind of cool. My father had built a couple of buildings and he had a house that he kind of built here in Arizona when, when the family moved to Arizona. And so 
I was really smitten by architecture. And then someone pointed out, it was a neighbor who saw me doing these house plans and said, well, you know, there's a profession called golf course architect. And, and I just sort of paused mentally and thought there is. And, um, and that, that was probably when I was maybe 10 years old or 11 years old. So then I started drawing golf course holes <laughs> and, and the rest is history. I mean, it became a, an obsession. Um, it went away for a while because when I, when I, uh, you know, went to college, a community college and whatever, I started doing other stuff. So there, there was a time there where it was still in my mind, but it really wasn't on the front burner. When you went to college, was that before or after you studied in, in Scotland? Um, well, it was right about the same time. So I had, I had um, uh, finished up high school and I went off to Scotland to this um, summer education program that was golf centric and there were people in it that were even you know not out of high school yet and then there were people in college age and um i had corresponded with fred hotry the father of martin hotry and um and he he was very kind to respond and, and say that he would <laughs> meet me uh, in dundee and he came to the program and gave a talk. Uh, as I recall, it was one day at lunch. So I kind of helped this program have some educational content. And my focus there, I did play a lot of golf, but my focus was kind of independent study. So I would I would go back to the courses and um, hang around and uh, take pictures and um, just kind of, you know, absorb what I could in that whole Fife Dundee area, you know, around the old course. And, and, um, you know, I came back, I think Glen Eagles might've been the most inspirational of the places I ever visited because it was just so different. Um, I mean, the old course was great. Don't get me wrong. Carnoustie was great. You know, all the courses we played were great, but, um, for some reason, Glen Eagles was just, just stuck in my mind as like, you know, what a great piece of property. Um, and, fascinating golf holes and uh you know i'd never seen things like that before so it was really an eye-opener and that's interesting that you did this program in scotland and then kind of you know fell into other interests in in college but but found your way back um and and glenn eagles i'm sure being in fife people would have thought like oh of course he's gonna say the old course was his big inspiration but yeah like a lot of people i i think when i saw the old course i didn't understand everything that was going on and you know bobby jones was famous for i think that same you know relationship with the old course where he he remarked that you know he didn't like it the first time he was there that wasn't the case with me i just didn't understand it you know i didn't i wasn't prepared at that time to understand the relationship of how the town and the sea and the golf course all met and the reason for it. And, and I, I think that that it was because I, I really hadn't formed any deep appreciation for golf course architecture. I just kind of knew about it and was absorbing it, but that's really the magic of the old course, you know, is that it's a culture and a mindset more than it is a golf course. And um, a lot of people have 
talked about that. In fact, there's books written about the fact that, you know, there's poems written about the old course, you know, taking over a town. <laughs> Golf takes over a town. And, um, and I probably experienced that and was right, obviously right in the middle of it, but I had no idea the impact of it at the time. I just thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is, this is unique. This is different. Well, I could be a fly on the wall for a conversation with you and Joe. I know you guys have known each other quite some time. And uh, Joe, your, your familiarity with Forrest and his work, um, you know, I know you guys met, we talked about this before we started recording, you met before you were actually a golf writer, but when did you start to learn about Forrest's work and, uh, and what did it, how did it speak to you? Yeah, I think um, that we had an architect, and we call him we because he was based in Arizona, uh, Jack Snyder, Arthur Jack Snyder, the famous Snyder family, which Forrest will get into. But Jack Snyder was probably the most prolific architect in and around the state of Arizona in the early 1980s, late 1970s, um, and before that, and so forth. So it was a connection <clears throat> that uh, my sister had made with Jack Snyder on working on some possible projects and so forth when she was a college student. And lo and behold, Forrest Richardson came into our lives. And that was sometime around 1984. But Forrest, obviously, you had some successful businesses before you got into architecture as a full-time vocation. But Jack Snyder was a catalyst in all of this. How did that come about? Well, I, as a as a kid, I think I still have it. I sent uh, a, a letter to the American Society of Golf Course Architects when I was probably eleven or twelve, and I received back a, a membership application. They had no idea I was, you know, preteen kid, and um, <laughs> it was a it was a it were two pieces of paper. I still have them. One was a trifold eight and a half by 11 paper. That was the membership application in the early 1970s. And then the other was a single eight and a half by 11 sheet printed with a map of the United States with little dots on it of where all the members at the time were located. I think there were about 45 members. And so I kept those and um, lo and behold, there was one in my same zip code. Arthur Jack Snyder. And, and um, I called him up and he didn't know that I was riding a 10 speed bicycle, but I, I ended up going to his house and um, I became known as the kid on the bike. So I would hear Ruth, his, his wife, uh, Ruth Snyder would, uh, as I would drive up into the carport, she would say from the kitchen, Jack, it's the kid on the bike again. And uh, I would go into his drafting room which was about six feet wide uh and about 15 feet long and it and i still have the drafting table that he worked on and we call it the snyder table but that was my friendship with jack it, it began as a young kid and then continued all the way up until the what, what joe just mentioned when in in the mid 80s i started to get serious about how do I get back into golf course design? You know, I've never made money at it. So John Solheim and Kirsten Solheim at Ping gave me kind of my first 
assignment when they bought Moon Valley, which was to go out and survey the course and make some recommendations on what to do. And, um, and then right after that, I had an opportunity to work with the uh, builders of the Point Resorts in Phoenix on their first golf course. And that's right about the time, I think, Joe, that I uh, probably ran into you over at Jack's Place was I was kind of trying to get Jack involved in the Point Resorts. And then he pulled a fast one on me and got me involved. So that was that was a story. That was a story unto itself. But it was it was pretty funny. I told the people at the Point Resorts, "Well, you ought to call Jack Snyder because they needed a golf course architect." And so I kept hounding them, and they said, "Oh yeah, we did talk to Jack, and I think we've got everything figured out." And then I called Jack up in 1984 or five, probably early '85. And I said, well, I hear that the Point Resorts is going to hire you. And he said, well, yeah, they, they they did. They hired us. And I paused and I said, what do you mean us? And he says, well, I told them that I'd watch over your shoulder, but that you would do the design. So it was a tremendous gift, um, you know, that had taken, you know, many years to come to realize. But it was a tremendous opportunity for me. And of course, I was scared completely scared and fearful of what would happen. And, um, but I made, I managed through it and I did that first project and Jack was very supportive, very helpful. He never really wanted to take credit for it. Um, begrudgingly, he, he let them put his name on it with mine, but he made sure that I got credit, which was just a wonderful gift, you know, for him to, to give me. Well, I certainly love the idea of someone getting their first design commission and not realizing they got it. <laughs> well, it's, it's exactly how it happened. And um, uh, it wasn't without its, I mean, it was, that project went all the way to the Supreme Court of the state of Arizona. So if you remember, it involved swapping land between the city of Phoenix and the developer. And it was fought by the Friends of the Mountain Preserve uh, who took it to the extreme and, uh, the, the, we built, um, 14 holes, uh, and we had four yet to build that were on the land to be traded. And the project was stalled for two years and went all the way to the Supreme court. And I, I thought to myself at the time, oh, I guess all golf course projects go this way, you know? So, <laughs> so now almost nothing phases me. Right. So, I mean, I figure if your project goes to the state Supreme Court level, you can probably withstand anything like the California Coastal Commission or the Game and Fish Department or whatever. So uh, but that was that was at the time, of course, I had no clue how golf course projects actually happened. I was just learning. But to, find, you know, to have the project go that far in the legal uh, realm and it eventually got approved and everything was fine and. I think people even today are very happy with what we did. We we did the right thing. I mean, everyone made out. It was a win-win-win. The, the city got better land and more land for the mountain preserve. And we got some kind of trashed drainage land that was on the edge of the mountain preserve for the golf course. And the, the citizens of Phoenix got a public golf course, you know, something that everyone could play. And uh, I think it was a win-win. Forrest, uh, Jack Snyder was a past president of the ASGCA, and when you uh, were elected 
in October 2020 to be the 75th president uh, of the ASGCA. You called it one of your proudest honors in your career. What did getting that position you know, mean to you? And, and what exactly does that entail, being the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects? Well, in a normal year, uh, it would have some uh, fanfare duties at, at the various golf shows, the PGA show and the superintendent show, and, and maybe attending the Masters and the U.S. Open, even the British Open, the Ryder Cup, you know, the PGA Championship, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I was the COVID uh, period president, so I had, a, I had a little different relationship with my duties, uh, which which turned out okay. But as far as the moment, I mean, I remember, um, first of all, I never thought I might be able to become a member because at the time that I was maybe ready to be a member, the requirements for membership were differently configured, let's say, than they were in the early, early days. And then and then even today, they keep evolving a little bit as the as the business of golf design changes. You know, today we're doing more remodels and retrofitting and reimagination, not not as many fresh out of the box courses. So the 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 reality was that when I became a member, it was, you know, really a fine line, you know, whether I had enough projects and portfolio to, to be a member. And then when I became a member, it was very proud, never really <clears throat> expected to be in leadership. And then when, when I got the call from Steve Smyers, the past president, whose job it is to nominate and inform the new leader, you know, coming on to the, to the uh, cycle of be, you become secretary and then treasurer and then vice president and president. And so uh, I'll, I'll never forget the call was just, you know, spine tingling. You know, I was just uh, honored and Steve couldn't have been nicer and said that it was an overdue nomination, but there were a lot of qualified people and, and he was hoping that I would accept the challenge. And I did never, of course, knowing that COVID would <laughs> would come about. Uh, so, you know, I, we didn't have an annual meeting the year that I was going to become president. And that's kind of one of the biggest society events is when you, you know, accept the gavel and all of that. So that was all done virtually. And, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I made the best of it. I, um, I, I did go to a couple of golf tournaments and I, I remember distinctly being at the masters the, that year and there were no real formal bleacher like areas set up, you know, for fans. And it was amazing because you could see Amen Corner in its sort of pristine shape the way members would see it rather than covered in patrons. And so there were some little bright spots uh, in the COVID year, but uh, it it was the, the, the responsibilities of leadership of the society, they kind of move and ebb and flow with the you know, the way golf course design is going. And so the year that I was president, it was all about trying to lobby government and municipalities across North America to realize that golf was a good thing and that it should be open. And, um, and I spent lots and lots of time on the phone, um, trying to convince, you know, mayors and governors and other people that, why are you closing golf? Why are you, you know, this is the perfect thing for the pandemic. 
And uh, the last holdout, by the way, was Toronto and, and Ontario, Canada. And I took a leap of faith with the, uh, um, I don't know what they call it, the, 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 the head of the Ontario province of Canada. And I went back to 1917 during the uh, Spanish flu pandemic. And I sort of found newspaper articles with the help of the USGA that showed that golf was not closed in Ontario. And so with the help of Lauren Rubenstein and some others, we convinced Ontario to finally, um, you know, open golf courses because why would they do something different than they did a hundred years before? So, <laughs> uh, well done. That is yeah, fascinating. It, 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 it wow. was it was one of my accomplishments, and it happened after my presidency, but it still was kind of residual from some of the things that I did, and and I did other things. Okay, we we did other things, but it was a different year because of the pandemic. Well, gosh, I mean, you just look at golf's how golf's numbers have exploded. Um, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, and um, a hat, tip of the cap to you being a part of that. So, um, another thing you did was when you were elected, you created a, a video uh, called Ahead of the Game where you encouraged uh, golf and, and architects to push the envelope, meaning saying, you know, not everything has been done. There, there are always new ideas out there. Um, I know Joe wants to talk to you about Mountain Shadows, uh, the 18-hole par 3 course uh, in Scottsdale. And certainly want to hear about other courses, but do you have specific examples where you thought like, man, I'm really doing something different and pushing the envelope when it comes to a design that I've done? Well, you, you, you mentioned a few that, you know, that we've got in the works, the 20 hole par three with the kind of music theme so that we bring another sense into the round of golf that, um, that I think is kind of fun. And then the duel on the hill concept, which is, stalled at the moment kind of waiting for uh, some legal in uh, untangling but uh when, when i did that film that would have been the message that i would have had for my fellow golf course architects so i would have i would have accepted the gavel and then i would have given a 10 or 15 minute you know sort of thank you for electing me president and it's honorable and here are the things that i'd like you to think about and when i realized i wouldn't have that opportunity at first, it was sort of like, oh, shoot, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't get to do that. Uh, and my wife, Valerie, pointed out that, well, you could still do it. Maybe you do it in some sort of a video or film. And then I began to think, oh, well, that could be even better because now I could reach all of the designers around the world and the people that own courses and the people that influence courses, green committees and, and people that own golf courses and develop them. And so... In thinking about all those people from Mike Kaiser to, you know, to Ben Dewar and Cabot and, and everybody that's out there. Okay. I mean, then not that those people are my clients, but I, I, I was thinking, well, what message would I have, you know, for these people, for this group of people that's passionate about golf architecture? And that's how the film came about. And we had just finished Mountain Shadows uh, a little before. So, you know, I had that to go on, but I was seeing so many exciting things being talked about. And I recognized that moving forward with the environmental constraints and the water constraints and the time constraints and the new way of thinking about golf that was kind of incubating, 
that the, the, the architects are going to drive that or if they don't, they should. Okay. So, so, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 you think of buildings for an example, I mean, you know, I, I think architecture has led the transformation of buildings in the last hundred years or more. And, um, why not golf course architects, you know, that we should be the ones really setting the pace for things. So that was my message is let's think outside the box. Let's, let's roll up our sleeves and really create fun things. And let's understand that it isn't always a four and a half hour experience. And like Joe, <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning, it's not always four par fours and four par fives and, or, or, you know, four par threes and four par fives and the rest of them are fours and, par 72, you know, 6,800 yards. I mean, there's much, much more to think about. And that was my message. And so I, I, I'm, you know, proud of it. It still gets play. The film is still relevant. And, and the message, I think, I don't know if, hopefully I was just a small part of the movement of what we're seeing today, um, or at least a part of it. Let me put it that way. I mean, I don't know how much influence it had, but I really, really pushed that narrative because I feel strongly that it is the future of the game, just as all the other advancements in the last 500 years have been, you know, I mean, we don't play the same format of golf that we played 400 years ago. We don't play the same type of holes or the same type of sequence or the same, you know, experiences. It's totally different. And I think that that's this go around. It's exciting because, there are almost no rules anymore, which has been, that's what's held us back is that with the standardization of the, of the game and the format and the time and the experience. And, um, you know, even the way you arrive at a club is different today. I think if you really think about it, it's, it's not, it's not driving down the Augusta driveway and, and, going to that little circle and dropping your clubs off or, or being greeted. There's, there's other ways for people to, to experience golf. And, and that's what I'm really excited about. That was a long winded answer. I apologize. <laughs> Take your golf expertise to the next level with links premier unlocking the most exciting and insightful coverage of the game's courses, travel communities, architecture, and more. With Lynx Premier, our latest subscription tiers offer something for everyone. Whether you enjoy reading the print edition of Lynx, clicking through our digital magazine, scrolling around lynxmagazine.com, or all of the above. Plus, subscribers receive priority notifications for exclusive Lynx events, a welcome discount code to the Lynx online shop, and much more. Get your all-access pass today by visiting lynxmagazine.com and clicking the subscribe link. Well, well Forrest, we'll... Uh... Uh, just briefly, but I mean, you got such a positive reputation in terms of out of the box thinking. Um, they haven't been built yet, but but briefly tell us about the concept for Duel on the Hill, and then for a project in Phoenix called the Score. Okay, well, Duel on the Hill uh, was with Mark Fine and uh, and back in the Pennsylvania region, and uh, Mark and I worked together. He's now an ASGCA member, which. Uh, I'm very proud of to, to see him come into the ASGCA. Mark had this uh, planning project and asked me to be a part of it. And it was an old golf course, 18 holes, kind of a, you know, run of the mill course and pleasant little site outside of uh, the Lehigh area. And they wanted to downsize it 
and turn it into some more entertainment oriented golf venue, but still have a golf course. And uh, in, in taking a look at it, I just had this concept that the way it was routed, well, what if we kind of combined these holes and had pairs of golf holes? So think of a left hole and a right hole. So you have one left and one right, two left and two right, three left and three right. And they're all the same basic length, but they're different and unique from each other. So let's say number four left might be a downhill par three to a well-guarded trapped green and, and number four right might be more along a ridge line, same length, but to a totally different green, maybe a Redan style or something like that. And the idea would be that the players, if, if the pass off group goes off at 904 um, and the uh, Lunsford group goes off at 904, one of you is assigned left and one of you is assigned right. You tee off both at 904 and whoever finishes that first hole first in your, your foursome gets to choose on the second hole whether you play left or right. And of course, the idea would be that the holes would have unique qualities, but they'd have about the same time par, which is the length to play the hole. And what it does is it builds into the golfer's mindset and goal to play the course quicker in order to be able to choose your own destiny. So there might be a favorite hole coming up at number seven or number 12 or wherever it might be that you really want to play the par five left because it's a favorite hole and has a, you know, maybe a Dell punch bowl green and number uh, the right hole of the same pair might be a great hole, but might not be your favorite. And so the idea is it stimulates golfers to play quicker. And um, I think it's a concept that has traction. It also has an incredible amount of variety. I mean, it's up into the near 100,000 different courses that can be created that way. And the other benefit is you don't have to play the course that way. Okay, so you can still play it as two separate nine-hole courses. This is only a management option that that, that we devised. And, and so the thinking there was um, it doesn't cost any more to do it. It's it's just an attribute, and it's only attainable when you have those same time pars basically in the in the routing. So it it was nine holes, each hole basically having a pair, which are parallel to one another or side by side, and that's the concept. And then the twenty hole course that we're working on here in Phoenix called Cotton Fields is an old eighteen hole regulation course, um, and that concept came about that. that Part of the reason for the part three design was that we needed to downsize it and make room for new residential homes in the community, because that is is what the project is really all about. And in doing that, we needed to keep the existing houses whole in terms of their views and their frontage to the golf course. So um, it it really became linear mathematics is that in order to have back yards backing up to golf course i needed so much linear feet of golf and 18 part three holes wasn't quite enough so we added two bonus holes and then the concept for the score came about so score double meaning uh, 20 and then score as in music um and and that was the concept to hey maybe it would be fun if as people went from hole to hole um there would be an app that they could download at their option that would have musical genre 
of country western or classical music or pop or uh, whatever it might be um, that would change as people went from hole to hole. And the music would, of course, be able to be changed and would be able to have the elements of tranquility or more beat and rhythm or whatever. And those would somehow match the golf experience that you were playing. So <clears throat> we're working on that. It's it's fun and exciting. Right now, that is in the finishing process of getting approval, uh, the whole project. It's it's very cumbersome because anytime you're working in an existing neighborhood, you have lots and lots of people that have opinions and and rightly so. I mean, they, they live there. So, you know, that golf course, that's the funny thing about golf courses, you know, existing golf courses are the central parks of the people who live and work and travel around that area. And that's a funny phenomena because you have these people out there that are against golf in some ways. And we all hear, you know, that, that group of people kind of saying, Oh, golf's a waste of land, a waste of time. It's only for the rich. It's only for the elite, which of course is not correct. But those same people, if they live near a golf course and you want to close it, they're the first people to come forward and go, wait a minute, what do you, what do you mean you're closing the golf course? I mean, what are you going to do with it? You know? So, so um, welcome to my world. You know, I, I, for whatever reason, I have a lot of those kind of projects where I'm dealing with existing neighborhoods. You mentioned Mountain Shadows. That was one. You know, I had 100 homeowners. Well, let's get to that, shall we? Yeah, well, Are you, you ready? Way. You I, way. <laughs> I want to give you a little break because we're going to break. This is one of the uh, truly exceptional projects that you've been involved with, uh, with a long history of it. Um, as far as the score goes, your 20-hole concept, uh, uh, this is my personal request. Get in Frank Sinatra's Nice and Easy. Uh, I like that song and the thought in terms of me getting up to uh, to play golf hole. Okay, do But let's noted. move on to a golf course that is finished, and it was finished about, gosh, it's already been almost 10 years, maybe. Maybe eight or nine years. That is the short course at Mountain Shadows in Scottsdale, which has been an enormous hit. It achieved some interesting notoriety last year when it became the first par three course uh, in the U.S. to ask for and get a $150 green fee, uh, which was really remarkable. I think that's the number. Um, some incredible views, uh, really fun. Uh, also some controversial ideas for greens and routing, which I think you relished. Larry Fitzgerald, the Hall of Famer wide receiver, John Rahm, Tony Finau, all of those guys are among those who played recently in the weekly skins game they have there. So what was the concept for the short course at Mountain Shadows in Scottsdale? Why do you think it's been so successful? Well, it was it was an original course that Jack Snyder, my mentor, did in 1961. And it was way ahead of its time. It, it originally had two par four holes, but it was a short executive course that you could play with your grandkids or you could have diverse groups of people playing in the same foursome, all having a good time. And you could finish in a, you know two and a half hours or, or whatever. And uh, when the resort sort of fell on hard times and, and needed a lot of work, the interesting thing is the resort eventually closed. 
in the 90s, and then the golf course stayed open. It was very popular. And when the redevelopment work happened, we were brought in. Jack had passed away by then, and um, uh, but he had always known that it was a possibility. So it was a labor of love on my part, certainly very inspirational to go figure out how to reimagine what Jack created, you know, so many years early. And our vision was we had to give up some land to make it pencil for resort expansion and some new residential areas. So we took a small course and made it smaller and the par four holes, which were really not relevant anymore, um, went away. And I was happy about that. I wanted to take the big club out of people's hands as much as I reasonably could from a safety liability point of view. And we just created 18 fun holes. And then we had this little hole that I'm sure you're going to ask about, the, the par two hole that that just <laughs> became a way to get from 17 to 18, really. And and uh, but the but the overriding concept was fun and was to create interesting, unique greens with their own personality, some of which we've seen before, like the Beeritz and the bottle green and the plateau green and whatever, but with unique spins on a few of them. And um, they are a little controversial. You mentioned some of the celebrities. Larry Fitzgerald told me once, I asked him, I saw him out one night at a restaurant and, and I said hi to him and we had met before, but I said, Larry, what is it? Why is it again that you like Mountain Shadows so much? And he said, it's because I feel that I've played 18 holes and I have, but it's only taken me, you know, a third the time. And, and it's just a joy. And it's, uh, and it's also, you know, it doesn't take my whole day up. And that's back when he was playing, you know, or finishing up his career. So I think that was exactly what we wanted. We wanted to speak to the new generation of golfers and players that maybe didn't want to invest five hours, you know, in a whole experience um, and wanted something fun. You know, that was, I mean, it, Desmond Muirhead used to say the part three hole is the most fascinating hole in golf because it's the only hole that the architect says you will stand here and only here and execute a shot to the green. And, um, and all, you know, the par fours and the fives are not that way. You know, the shot to the green is totally dependent on where the player ends up and their ability and their choices and everything. But on the par three, we actually say, this is where you're going to stand and this is where you're going to swing and execute your shot to try to put the ball in the hole. And, uh, and having 18 of those, I think it's a lot of fun, especially when they're different and unique. And that's the one thing I really wanted to create in Mountain Shadows was I wanted the player to remember the fourth hole from the eighth, from the 12th, from the 15th, from the 18th. I wanted them to be able to literally go back and say, oh, yeah, the, I remember the hole with the, you know, the big ski slope green, which I'm sure is, Joe, one that you're, you know, wondering what was going through my mind on that. But uh, and by the way, the superintendent is still wondering, you know, what I was trying to create there but uh, <laughs> anyway we had a lot of fun with it and yes there are some holes that you know we get criticized for but that's okay i mean i think that's that's part of what we do and there's a yeah, part two that's the way i got yeah, go i gotta know about the part two well i wrote about the part two in the book i wrote called routing the golf course which was published in 2000 
And I, I always had this concept that why couldn't you have a part two where you just start from the green? You know, you had T markers on the green and you you got two strokes to regulation to quote unquote, you know, make a par. And um, I don't think many people took a lot of note to it. Um, I didn't want to be seen as a crackpot, so I never really spoke much about it, but it was, but it's in the book. And I was having uh, breakfast with Perry Dye in Pinehurst. I remember this distinctly. I don't remember the year, but Perry and his wife were in the restaurant in Pinehurst and they invited me over to sit with them at breakfast. And among the things we talked about, Perry looked at me he says, by the way, I love your part two idea and I'm going to be the first to do it. And I said, well, Perry, wait a minute, wait a minute. That would make, you know, I don't know about that. So <laughs> we started a little side bet, which one of us would be the first one to convince a client to build a part two hole. And uh, over the years, um, you know, I, I, we would remind each other, you know, hey, I've got a part two on the books right now, but I wouldn't admit to Perry that the client, of course, wasn't going to go for it and vice versa. He would say to me, hey, I've, I've got a part two hole I'm doing down in Guatemala or something. I think we're going to build it. And probably the truth would be that there's no way the client, you know, would ever go for something like that. So when it came to Mountain Shadows, it was sort of an interesting process, but we had this little remnant piece of land that the golfer was going to have to walk to get from 17 to 18. And, and I was really against it. I kept trying to make the development group understand why I needed a golf hole there, you know, and why I shouldn't want people to have this long walk to get to 18. And of course I lost that argument because it all involved money and real estate and everything. So finally I just said, you know, you could put a long green in here, you know, 200 foot long green, and I could kind of cascade it from top to the bottom and put some boulders around it and make it really fun. And we'll call it a part two hole, It'd be hole 17.5, right? You, you know, and you just, it's a bonus hole. You don't have to count it, but wouldn't it be fun? And it came very close to getting not approved. And finally, I kind of tweaked some numbers on the budget. And I pointed out to the developers that, you know, we're going to have to landscape it anyway. So it's going to need irrigation and it's going to need, you know, landscape. It's going to need a cart path. The only thing we're really saving is the green itself. And of course, I came up with some number that I won't disclose in this podcast. But, you know, I, I made the green a really small number, um, which I learned how to do that in both directions, by the way, from Jay Morish, who, who taught me some lessons on that. And, and it worked. You know, the client said, oh, yeah, let's go ahead and build a green. Yeah, let Forrest do what he wants. You know, that'll be fun. And it's been a big hit. You know, I mean, the, the neighbors around there will tell you that people just really have a great time on the bonus hole uh, because they can make a hole in one and they can settle bets. And, and you know, it's it's a, it's a unique experience. Um, someday I hope to do it, by the way, on a real course. My My real goal is to do it on a regulation course you know, where I can like pop in an extra par five or something like that and have a par two. And then the beauty of it, by the way, is from a land use point of view, compared to par, like if you take a ratio of strokes to par versus the amount of acreage, the par two is absolutely the most efficient golf you'd ever create because, you, you know, you have this small little area, you know, barely an eighth or a sixth of an acre where you're, you're getting two strokes to the total par of the course. 
whereas a par four hole takes you know seven acres or or, or more so uh anyway it's it, it's been fun and uh joe you've played it i think you've had fun playing it well i'll tell you this for us it's so interesting to me that some of this evolved from a side bet between you and Perry Dye. And the <laughs> yeah. hole is called the Forest Wager. And indeed, go. I mean, it's a tough two putt, but it's really fun at that point in the round to be able to do that. And uh, I have had uh, two separate occasions where wagers were actually involved. I'm one and one, lost one, but won a sleeve of balls for my efforts uh, the other time that there was something riding on the line. So it is a lot of fun. Again, that sense of whimsy, like Al referred to with your website comment, that that golf courses could and should have a little sense of humor, you know, about all of that. So, um, you know, that that definitely is a lot of fun. And, you know, and something else, getting back one more time to the individual holes at Mountain Shadows, and they do call it the short course at Mountain Shadows. Uh, you once also told us that the hole that influenced you the most in your design career was the Dell hole at La Hinch in Ireland. And you have a version of the Dell, uh, I think the 14th hole at Mountain Shadows. So why, what is it about the Dell that fascinated you so much and you you have incorporated that into at least one of your designs? Well, I just never, when I went to La Hinch with Valerie, my wife, the first time, many, many years ago, we just never seen anything like it. I mean, it was, it was just dramatic and, and it was like, oh my goodness. I mean, the, the closest thing I'd seen to it, I should, I should back up a little bit. Um, Roy Dye, uh, Pete's brother, uh, who lived in Arizona, he designed a course called Mummy Mountain here in Arizona that had a Dell Hole. Of course, I had no idea that it was called the Dell Hole or what it, that it was patterned after La Hinch. But I mean, it, Roy built a small mountain on this course <laughs> in Phoenix, now called Stone Creek, and that that whole mound has been melted down. It doesn't have any of the of the punch you know, that Roy had in the original course called Mummy Mountain. But um, but when I went to Ireland and played the Dell, I just came away thinking, oh, my God, that's tremendous. And um, so, yeah, at Mountain Shadows, we did a small version of it and um, uh, had a lot of fun with it. And um, and and again, the, 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 going back, the, the idea at Mountain Shadows was to create unique personalities for the holes. And 14 is a very short little hole, 70 some yards. And, and it even plays shorter than that. In fact, that's a hole that I had the concept. They, I don't know if they do this or not, but I built a little 45 yard tee. And I suggested that that should be the, the black tees, the hard tees <laughs> and, and let the, that let the, uh, you let the forward and the regular tee be the one that's more 60 to 70 yards. And and I did that. That's another piece of humor, right? I mean, to think, imagine if you're playing like in the skins game that you mentioned that they play there with all these scratch players and 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 some tour pros and whatever. Imagine if they they got to the 14th hole and instead of going to the back where it's 89 yards or whatever, they're told, uh, "Oh, today you're playing at 43 yards." You know, that's a very 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 different shot. Very much so. Al, what else have you got for Forrest? Yeah, I I know we've taken a lot of your time. I want to ask a few more questions before we go. Um, I'm going to steal one of Joe's here. 
uh, talking about who you feel is the game's most underrated horse architect, ancient or modern. Uh, who would that be and why? Well, that's a, you know, I, 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 I do say that Henry Phones and the Phones family at Oakmont was, they certainly get credit, but it, not so much as architects. I mean, if you read most of the history of the Phones, they're credited as, as, as people that sort of, you know, established and founded Oakmont. But when you really think about it, what Phones was doing at the turn of the century after, you know, the early 1900s is creating a vision of American golf. Uh, and, and if you really study it today, I think people have said, oh, well, that's kind of the Redan or that's kind of the Plateau or that's kind of the this or that or whatever. Well, I don't buy much of that. I think that Phones was doing what Phones wanted to do and he didn't really care about the things that Charles Blair McDonald, you know, later cared about or Seth Rayner or whatever, where they were doing template holes. I think Phones was building his idea of an American golf course and, and really wasn't influenced as much or at all really by the, uh, the British Isles and what, you know, what had migrated over to the United States. So from that perspective, I think, I think that if you take a look at what phones was doing, uh, it was breakthrough and, and of course it was difficult. That was his other mantra was, you know, he, you know, the story was he would want to, you know, put bunkers in just to, because he would see a member get away with something and say, Oh, let's go dig a big hole there. And by the way, Jack Snyder was superintendent at Oakmont and his father was on the grounds crew. And that's, that's how they got into golf. And, and, and so I have a little bit of that lineage, but in terms of modern architects, man, there's so many, I think, I think one architect that's fallen a little bit, off the radar, who I always respected was uh, and is Jim Ng, uh, you know, who who just is to me fascinating in that he's done so much great stuff. Mike Strance as well, um, you know. Sadly, we lost Mike uh, too early, um, and then you know, in between, then was Desmond Muirhead, who who was a modern golf course architect and a friend of mine, who I think doesn't get sometimes the credit due uh, he was really the the father and the uh the the originator of the planned community and you might hate and a lot of the golf course architect aficionados you know the the people that quote unquote know everything about golf architecture they hate the community golf course but if you really look at what Muirhead did back in the 60s and 70s and 80s he was doing it right I mean, he was creating residential and and mixed use development with a golf community like you know Mission Hills and Desert Island and and Muirfield Village and whatever, and doing it the right way, and actually creating the prototype for how you do things like that correctly, so that it's the best environment possible, the best plan possible, the best experience for people that play golf and people that don't play golf. And uh, I mean, look at Pasatiempo. I mean, that's a, an example of a, of a horrible land plan. You know, great golf course, you know, great McKinsey bones. But I mean, those those homes wedged in along a few of those holes, you know, they that's what Muirhead never wanted to do was to have that feel. And what happened, of course, after Muirhead's great work in the 70s and 80s and even after 
people then took the community golf course and started to have it be influenced all about money. And they started to tip the scales in favor of money and profitability and home yields and setbacks became smaller. If you look at Muirhead's plans, I mean, Desert Isle is Desert Island is a great example. You know, his concept there was, hey, let's build a golf course around the outside of a lake and let's put all the development in condominiums on an island in the middle. And everyone will have a view of the golf course, but the but the homes will be separated from the golf course. And he, and what a tremendous, wonderful concept and idea. Um, but anyway, that I think those players would come to my mind. But then you, you asked the question, Al, which is very appropriate. There's so many great designers out there now. And it's not just the ones we read about all the time, over and over and over. There's people out there that are shapers that are starting to get into golf course architecture and learning the other side of the business. And then there are people that are coming from other walks of life, just like Pete Dye, you know, that are coming into golf course architecture through land planning or agronomic or, or even development. And it's exciting, you know, and I think that's the, 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 the really rich thing about our profession right now is it's at a time when, when there's a lot of really neat, exciting things happening. And what my hope is that we start to see some things that, start looking different than the same old because i think i think we've in the last 20 years here this rough and ragged sort of retro you know make it look old and everything that's okay i get that but um pretty soon you know it all looks the same and and that's something i hope we start to zig a little bit you know when when <laughs> or, or go in a different direction you know so i'm 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 clapping and applauding all the time when i see innovative things that are really fun and different uh, like what you talked about earlier the short courses the alternative courses that sort of thing well forrest uh i will say that most of your uh current renown as an architect is for your out-of-the-box thinking but others are now acknowledging you uh for your role as a father uh al have you got a question for forrest in that regard <laughs> yeah yes um uh, you are the father of a Hollywood actor who's become quite popular for her role on White Lotus and in some other projects as well. Uh, big fan. My wife is a big fan of hers, uh, and as am I. What's it like being uh, the the dad of someone who is maybe debatably more famous than you now? Oh, definitely more famous. Well, Haley, Haley Lou, uh, we couldn't be more proud, obviously, of her and her career, and um, she. Um, she grew up obviously with me designing golf courses. So as a, as a little girl, she would take an ink pen and stipple on my illustrative plan sometimes. And even today she likes to come into my office and, and ask me if I have any stippling to do, which is you know little, little dots with a felt pen on a, on a, on a drawing. But um, I think, I think it, it's been a tremendous, uh, adventure watching her career and um you know we're we're happy my wife and i are happy to be a small part of that and uh it's fun every once in a while i involve her in something that i'm doing which is kind of neat and she accepts uh, when she can and then vice versa we get to go to some of these uh hollywood events that were completely out of place and so like you mentioned white lotus we were at the premiere of white lotus and and, you know, I've kind of learned to navigate those, but I'm obviously 
I don't even know what people think that we are. You know, they might look at us. Oh, those those are the people that. Hmm, what are they? What are they here for? You know, and uh, <laughs> so that's been kind of fun. But um, what one of the things that I do say we're both in the entertainment business, but we're at completely different parts of the spectrum. You know, so I mean, I'm in I'm in golf, which is entertainment, and uh, you know, she's right in the heart of quintessential entertainment you know which is the talent part of it so it's been fun though and it's it's been a joy and um and she does play golf every once in a while which is fun well maybe then you can get on the silver screen at some point with her as like a you know an extra role somewhere just as a i was an extra i was an extra yeah i i think you can still glimpse valerie and i in a movie called uh unpregnant which was filmed in New Mexico. And um, it was so cold when she was filming that movie uh, that they had a hard time getting locals to come down from Albuquerque to this uh, racetrack where they had set up a amusement park set, which is a, was a massive, it was like a carnival. And um, so we were there one night and we were minding our own business inside, by the way, a production van with hot chocolate and a heater on. And all of a sudden, the, one of the executive producers came knocking on the door and said, hey, I need at least three or four of you to come out and, and fill in for some areas. So we we were given coats, thankfully. And, um, and, and anyway, that it was fun. <laughs> and and I sacrificed the nice, warm, hot cocoa environment of the production van to go out and actually stand by a cotton candy machine and pretend to be enjoying myself even though it was like 30 37 degrees <laughs> and it was not supposed to be 37 degrees in the movie it was supposed to be spring so the funny part is that every time they would start to shoot they would come take our coats off and there'd be there was this team of people that were coat wranglers and hat wranglers and everything because we needed to look like it was summer and uh oh my god it was so cold and then as soon as the take would be done, they would, the coat wranglers would bring the coats and the hats back. And, and so. So it's not all the glitz and glamor they make it out to be. Well, that's the thing about, you know, her world is that it's like white Lotus, you know, the small secret of that is that yes, she's in Sicily and she's having a great time by all appearances, but then you start to get texts from her about, yeah, we just finished shooting and you're kind of looking at the, yeah, we just finished shooting the scene in the hotel lobby and you're looking at your phone going, it's 4.30 in the morning there. You know, and then you then you look at the production schedule, which sometimes we get a hold of, and you realize she has to be up then at 8.30, you know, for another shoot on a boat or whatever. So it is, it can be very grueling work. And um, I think that's one of the things people don't realize maybe in, in the uh, TV and film business and movie business is that it can be extremely demanding. And it is extremely demanding. It's not all sitting in a director's chair um, or on a green screen, you know, just dancing away. <laughs> Sometimes it's very, very difficult. So, um, but she loves it and it's a passion. And what more can you ask? You know, when you have a passion and you're able to follow it, uh, I mean, that's the pinnacle, right, of, of anyone's life is to be able to do something they like, you know. Absolutely. Well, Forrest, uh, it sounds like you have a whole family of folks who are practicing in the entertainment sphere. And 
from your perspective and designing golf courses and the art that it takes, where do you see golf course architecture going from where we are now? That is a really good question. Um, I think that artificial intelligence is going to play a part. Uh, I don't know what part it's going to play, but um, you're already seeing, I mean, I had a client and I, I'm not going to get into detail because first of all, it's a, it's a, uh, a client that at this point wants to remain somewhat anonymous in the work that they're doing. But um, let, let's call it the bean counter part of this fairly famous course that you guys would know um, uh, that kind of is a golf enthusiast, but not really involved in the golf course, but, but kind of oversees the finances of the whole custodial you know, relationship to the golf course. Came into a meeting about a month ago and expressed what they saw as the driving range becoming. Okay. They, they said, well, you know, we'd really like to transform this driving range into something that would be more welcoming so that more people could come use it. And he started describing fire pits and sitting areas and, and s'mores being served at night and low lighting. And, um, and it was, I'm, I'm writing notes, you know, in my little moleskin journal and, and and I'm thinking this is a pretty visionary. You no, know, this is this is cool. You know what this person was describing, and um, so I leave the project team. I left and went back to my hotel, and I'm doing some work on my computer. This is like three hours after the meeting, and all of a sudden, an email pops up from this guy that copies everyone that was in the meeting, and it's like here here is a little visual of what I was talking about today. And I am literally looking at what could be described as sort of a national park setting, you know, with waterfalls in the background and big mountains and a driving range tee with fire pits and people having s'mores, hitting golf balls out to us, a, a lowly lighted, beautiful little setting in the evening with stars and, and whatever. And it's animated. So the stars are like shooting stars and the lights are changing from pink to violet to whatever, and the fire pits are glowing. And, and this individual actually went on to some AI platform and described what he wanted and then sent it to everybody. And I have to say, I was very impressed. I wasn't offended. I was like, wow, you know, now it's not literal. Okay. I mean, there wasn't any golf design that I was really enamored with, but I mean, the fact that he was able to express into a computer what he was thinking and it came out the other end in a few hours and was distributed to people that to me is um pretty eye-opening and um uh, you know one one i mean just pick pick your pick your character okay look at the kaiser family and mike kaiser what, what would things be how would things be different if mike kaiser had ideas and they weren't just verbal or sketching on a napkin or pointing to a similar golf hole or, or an idea somewhere around the world. But what if Mike Kaiser could actually describe something and have it come to life and then hand it to one of the golf architects that, you know, he's worked with on his tremendous portfolio. That is kind of a game changer. And I'm not sure where it heads from there. Um, but also keep in mind that the golf architects probably can use that technology even better because we're visual thinkers 
and right brain thinkers and creative thinkers. So that would be my hope is that there's still a place for golf architects and the craft and the art form, but it's, it's definitely going to be influenced by technology. I mean, we're already seeing that with the simulators and uh, the new Apple device that's out, you know, the, the virtual reality Apple uh, product that was launched here a few months ago. And I think this will be the next great phase of golf architecture. Is there, for example, a reason that a golf course couldn't be created totally in the cloud without any turf or any water or any construction or any earth moving? Granted, it would be a different experience, uh, but could it be the same? I mean, think think for a moment of the leaps we've made in the world. Uh, I was at the Sydney Opera House, had a fortunate trip to be able to go down south many years ago. and uh, But keep in mind that that's the way people used to experience music, is real time in front of people that held instruments. and And how... Little do we remember that sometime, you know, in the last few hundred years, music became something that doesn't have to be performed live in front of people. And it could actually be put onto some disc or now digital form that doesn't even exist anywhere. And uh, by the way, not even created by wooden instruments or, or, or uh, percussion instruments or or horns or anything. Now it's created by computers. And yet we accept that. And there's and and we give Grammys for it. And we and people pay money for it. So to think that golf courses might not have a different kind of life, I think would be a mistake. I'm not saying that the traditional courses are going away, but I think that's if, if I were a young golf course designer, and I think of myself as one, but you know, I realized you know, I'm, I'm not in my thirties anymore, but if I was a young golf course designer, I'd be, I'd be learning as much about that as turf and grass and sand and drainage and, you know, all the things we've come to know. And by the way, the core elements of golf course design are still there. Routing, flow, creativity, greens, shaping, contours, trees or no trees, um, open views or concealed views or whatever it might be, they're all there. I mean, they, they, to think that the Dell the Dell hole couldn't be created in a digital form and experienced with some sort of great technology would be a mistake, probably. But anyway, that's that's just a prediction on my part. And again, my hope would be that on this AI stuff that we're hearing about is that the golf course architects, the right brain people could really lead the charge because I think it would be a mistake for the other side of the business. And it, I'm not, don't get me wrong. This, this financial person that came up with this AI thing and sent it out. I applaud that. I think that's great. But what's interesting is I could have probably done a better job than he did because I know more about, you know, I would be able to tell the computer different things, more exciting things even. So I'm convinced that my AI generated vision of the driving range with the fire pits and the people having marshmallows and stuff would be even better. And, and that's what I'm going to rest my case on is that I think that if architects take that on as a challenge, we'll have fun with it. But it is kind of scary, isn't it? Wouldn't you guys admit? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I didn't know that's, that's where you're going to go with your answer. And, um, 
I do think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I've experienced played with the, the golf plus VR app and they obviously have the VR versions of, of well-known courses. They have a few of their own course designs that are kind of gimmicky, more arcade style courses. But, um, I don't know if you know this, there's a company that I learned about not too long ago, uh, called hyperscapes golf club. Uh, and they're working with Nicholas design to create a members only golf club around fully virtual courses. So they designed their first design is going to be set in the, uh, Caledonian forest in Scotland from 6,000 years ago. And they're going to put a golf course there in this location. So, uh, right along the lines of what you're talking about. I mean, a major golf course firm, designing a golf course exclusively for virtual and for a virtual golf club where there will be more courses in the future. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting. And, and to think that we're at the very beginning leading edge of all of that. I mean, I, I, I was in television art direction before golf and I remember distinctly when things ramped up with the Apple computer one by one, there were industries I used to work with in graphic design that are not there anymore. They're, they're not industries that exist like typesetters and uh, color separators, which are people that back in the eighties would take color slides and photos from photographers and separate them into, you know, CMYK and RGB uh, different pieces of film. And obviously that now is done with a click of a mouse and, um, and, and whatever. So to think that these the hyperscapes people that you mentioned, and I have heard of them, I don't know a lot about it, but to think that that's not going to open the door to something even better, meaning meaning right now it's kind of rough technology probably, and a lot of people on the purest side would make fun of it, but we don't make fun of some of this stuff anymore. I mean, you know, think of what we uh, back to the music analogy, you know, I mean, most people experience music today in the digital form in their car or their house or their headsets or their iPhone or whatever it might be. And very few people experience it live and in concert, you know, and whatever. And uh, so I, I think that it's very, very exciting, um, scary in a way, you know, it probably freaks out some people. And, and there are a lot of people I'm sure that are going to listen to this go, well, that forest is crazy you know, you're not going to get rid of golf courses and whatever. And I'm not saying that that's not the point. It's just like the short course thing. We're not getting rid of 18 hole par 72 courses. That's not the point. There's still going to be a tremendous, you know, audience for that. But what we are going to see, and we're already seeing is people saying, well, I want to play the cradle while, I, while I'm at Pinehurst, you know, where I want to play band and trails, or I want to go play the new short course at, at uh, Sand Valley or whatever, wherever it might be. That's just a different, unique part of the golf offering. And by the way, I big I predicted, I told the National Golf Foundation 15 years ago, miniature golf is going to come back and you need to help it come back. And to some degree they have, you know, they, they've been in a somewhat of an incubator in, in, in kind of the whole top golf movement and the pop stroke and mini golf movement. And, and that, how cool is that? to put a club in someone's hand that maybe he's never held a golf club, you know, and they don't have to learn to swing, but they still have that magic experience of putting a little tiny ball into a small hole 
across a little field of obstacles. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that I, I look at these, and by the way, my prediction on these miniature golf things is, is it's the wrong thing to make them kind of look like a regular golf course, you know, with these little swards of green artificial turf and these silly bunkers that are white and made of artificial turf. I think that's going to go away real quickly. Why? Because people want obstacles. They want boulders and maybe not clown faces and castles, but something similar. And I, I think you're going to see these things start to get more creative because the ones that I see, yeah, they're nice and they're pleasant, but they're very, very elevator music in appearance. You know what I mean? <laughs> One hole looks like the next hole looks like the next hole. And and I, I think we're going to see a transformation of those. I hope we do, because I, I think that that's where they fall short. They're kind of fun. But if you pluck someone down at a, at one of these venues on the sixth hole and then blindfolded them and took them over the twelfth hole and took the blindfold off, they might not know they're on a different hole. You know, it's still surrounded by palm trees and little lights and and it doesn't look any different, really. So um, anyway, that's just an opinion. I might be wrong about that, but it's it's uh, it's exciting. And the hyper uh escapes thing is is really kind of i think it's the beginning of something well a lot to ponder joe uh we might just have to have forrest on again and let him keep going and figure out what else is going to be in the future of golf because there, there's a lot to chew on here and i'm with you i i like obstacles that i am not used to seeing when i play mini golf i want something completely different every single hole that you know, I always like the hole where you putt into the the stream and it carries your ball down into a a little <laughs> drain that gives you a hole in one. Well, I'm with you, Al. We're gonna go have some fun. You know, I think that's really, I I think if if someone were to want to test the waters on this, go to the ASGCA website, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and see if you can find the um, great golf course design challenge that we did during COVID for kids. And look at what these kids created and in the way of fun golf holes that were something out of their mind. And you will see the common denominator and theme to every single one of those designs is something that really hadn't been done before. You know, like, like a fairway that's made up of seven islands in a big lake or, or a, a green that, um, you know, is on top of a volcano-like hill that's not just 20 or 30 feet in the air, but a hundred feet in the air, whatever. I mean, I, this is, this is the new generation. They are the Red Bull generation, right? They, they want, they don't want golf that looks like elevator music. You know, they want golf. That's a little bit more spirited, put it that way. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a party, but it's definitely more fun than, maybe we thought of a hundred years ago. Joe, anything else from you for Forrest? No, sir. Uh, that was an enjoyable ride down, down the path of design, uh, present and future. Well, it was fun and I appreciate the opportunity and I, I could go on because I'm passionate about all of this, but um, I know we have to bring it to a close. So, but it, it was fun, and and um, there were some topics there that maybe deserved some follow-up. But you've got me thinking about some things, too. Oh, good. All right. Well, 
let's go ahead and, you know, bookmark it and talk to you again in the future. And once you've had some time to really chew into some of these ideas we've discussed. That sounds like a deal. Well, thanks again. Okay. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks, Joe.